All right. Good afternoon, guys. Uh, thanks for joining me today on another episode of Innovations and Integrations. Um, I've really enjoyed a lot of the conversations I've had the pleasure of having with both of you in the past. Uh, you guys have unparalleled knowledge and everything that comes uh, about in the EV charging space, a ever evolving and a moving target, as we all know. Um, if you could both take a second and let's start with you, Jim, and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you, your company, and, and kind of what you're working on right now. Sure. So uh, National Car Charging uh, just celebrated its 11th birthday. Uh, we live up to our name. We've done projects in 48 states. So I'm looking for the last two by the end of the year. We'll see if we get it. Um, and in that time, we've deployed almost 8,000 ports. So we're responsible for somewhere between 2 and 3% of the public ports across America. Uh, we are a value-added reseller. We carry uh, nine different hardware brands, five different networking platforms right now, uh, <clears throat> including serving as ChargePoint's largest value-added reseller in the nation. Uh, we work with all sorts of different market verticals, uh, and it's uh, there's not a lot of projects, types of projects we haven't seen out there yet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great. And, and Gabe, could you do a little introduction of yourself as well? Yeah, so um, Gabriel Andreessen, not to be confused with Anderson, and um, the small guy on the call here, um, president and co-founder of Innovus Energy. Uh, we were founded in September of 2019 out of uh, my business partner as last company. Uh, we, at the time, decided to get into the EV space as a complementary service. And EV charging is probably now about 40% of our business. We install as few as four ports to as many as I think we're working on one right now that's 320 ports. I think we have somewhere around 300, 350 ports in the ground from level two in DC fast in 20 different states. And um, it's certainly been a pleasure uh, getting to know you, Ryan, and uh, working together on what we're, we have going on. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's, uh, like I said before, it's a pleasure knowing both of you guys. So, you know, we're going to have a, a pretty broad conversation and kind of we'll, we'll dig into the weeds and some of the nerdy stuff we like to talk about. But let's let's talk on a high level of view for people that, you know, just know Tesla and, you know, ChargePoint, some of those big brands that you see every day. But could you go give your, uh, why don't you start, Jim, and talk about the different chargers between the superchargers and the, and the level two chargers. And then I'll have a follow-up question that I'll, I'll throw to Gabe. Yeah, for the uh, uninitiated, there's really three classifications. There's level one, level two, level three. Level one is going to be your essentially home charging, trickle charging. Level two is going to be 240, uh, 208 to 240 volts. And amperage is anywhere from 16 to 80 amps. And what that means is charging somewhere between 10 miles of range in an hour to 50 miles of range in an hour. And then we get into level three, DC uh, fast charging, which you might... Uh, be most familiar with like the Tesla supercharger. And that all of a sudden is much faster speeds uh, where you're talking 100 miles of range an hour on the slow side, all the way up to 1200 miles of range in an hour for the really top of the line stations for which there's really only one or two cars in the market that can even take that kind of speed. Uh, Tesla superchargers are uh, right there in the middle where there's some 150 kilowatt units, some 250 kilowatt units, uh, and they're just about to roll out some uh, higher power units than that. Uh, so it's um, <clears throat> really a, a very wide range of speeds, a wide range of prices. Yeah. Um, and so Gabe, I'll, I'll counter that. As you know, Jim kind of just gave us a very uh, broad definition of the different uh, levels. 
give me uh, an idea and, and Jim, you can happen here as well, but Gabe, what do you think um, are, are the most demand right now versus, you know, the level of one, two, and three chargers and what you're seeing? And um, I would like to point out that you guys are in both different regions of the country, so you're probably seeing some different uh, regional trends, but Gabe, give me an idea of what kind of what you're seeing today. Well, the interesting thing about charging stations is one size does not fit all. And you really have to think in terms of application and task specific. So I'll divide that into two different categories, which is a, a real underwhelming division. But think about level two charging in terms of where you have longer dwell times. So we do a lot of workplace charging. Workplace charging generally is level two. Um, when we first got started, uh, um, Jim probably is uh, extremely familiar with this as well. The, um, the charge point CT, what was it? Four, four, 40 CT? Yeah, CT 4000 was kind of the standard. Um, but now, okay, I drive a Tesla. That CT 4000 is uh, arguably uh, outdated. Um, getting as little as nine miles of range per hour at one that I use up the street for me versus the standard, what we're seeing here in New England uh, and other places as well is generally around a 48 amp level two charger is kind of the standard. Um, we have one of those at our office and that's what we generally have standardized on for our long dwell time customers. So garages, workplace charging, um, and then DC fast really is an interesting technology because it can open up the concept of having a fuel station wherever you are. So with my Tesla, there's uh, not too far from our office, there's a 250 KW DC fast charging station, supercharger, uh, Tesla network, and I'm getting somewhere around 800 miles of range per hour when my battery is low. Um, and I'll plug in, have lunch at the TGI Fridays across the street from that DC fast. And I come back and my car's full. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting about DC fast charging. Um, well, there's a couple, I mean, how deep do you want the wormhole to go? But where the US government is investing is through what's called NEVI funding. And those are all gonna be DC fast chargers. The goal is to have several thousand of these on the, um, the highways of the United States, uh, there are some inherent trouble that we're finding in DC fast. I'm sure Jim is probably having a similar situation uh, with DC fast, those higher loads, you need um, transformers and transformers are getting very hard to come by uh, on those higher KW systems. So we're looking at a project right now where we need a, it's a, a very, very large transformer. And I think we're six months out from getting the transformer so that we can install the DC fast charging station. Uh, I'll kick this over now to, to my friend, Jim. <laughs> yeah, I think Gabe's right. Where uh, if you're serving the customer, right, you're going to start with the use case and really find out what do they want to achieve with the project, who is our customer or what is the dwell time? I'll give you a good example. There's a brand new grocery store that is uh, finalizing construction near me and they put four level two units right in front that was a huge mistake and unfortunately we didn't get to them on time because uh, the amount of time people spend in a grocery store is roughly 28 minutes 
the amount of time people send at the average DC fast charger right now is about 28 minutes. So uh, putting a level two there where they're only going to get 10 or, or 20 miles of range in an hour is really the wrong tool for the job. So uh, it, that's where we always start. And it sounds like, you know, that's where Gabe starts as well. And that's where it should start is what does the customer want to achieve? Uh, you know, one of the reasons we have the wide portfolio that we do is because uh, we want to make sure we have something for everybody. And uh, I'll echo what Gabe said about how trends are shifting. You know, we're seeing more demand for the uh, the higher amperage level two units. Uh, we just did a project where the customer demanded 80 amp level two units, which is uh, the max that you're going to get for level two. Uh, we're also seeing um, <clears throat> a big increase in demand uh, for DC fast chargers. In fact, I just ran some numbers last night, and uh, the percent increase between last year and this year, there's been a 150% increase in DC fast charge sales for our company. Uh, and I expect that to continue um, as Nevi rolls out. Uh, and you know, Gabe is right that some of the bigger challenges is um, is just supply chain. Uh, not only the, the EV charging hardware itself, uh, but also uh, the underlying infrastructure that goes um, right underneath it. And uh, uh, to further complicate matters, it's a question of who pays for it. Is it going to be the state? Is it going to be the utility? Is it going to be the site host? Yeah, some utilities are coming up with some programs where they'll actually provide that. But at the same time, uh, I won't surprise anybody to know that utilities take their sweet time doing just about everything. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of information. I do have, I will send over to both of you guys. I got to wait till the NDA gets in place and everything. Um, but I do have some technology uh, that we came across. And that's the good thing about my roles. I get to make friends with guys like yourself, some people that are way smarter than me and then ride everybody else's coattails. But um, there's new technology that I think is really interesting that will be applicable to the, uh, the level three superchargers, those fast chargers that we discussed, and I think will help kind of close some of those bottlenecks. Um, but the next thing I want to take a step back here, I want to kind of talk about is Jim, you said you guys are celebrating your 11th year. Um, and you know, that, that's pretty, you're, you're way ahead of the curve as far as most people, you know, we, we pivoted, you know, eight or sorry, three years ago. Uh, four years ago, kind of like Gabe did into this space, uh, and it was just an easy lateral move for us and some of the stuff that we're doing. But tell me, like, how? what made you jump into the EV space? What were you doing beforehand, and where did you see the opportunity? Because I don't think people really understand where this is going today. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't even have gray hair when I started, um, <laughs> at least not much. Some may say it's my kid, and some may say it's uh, you know, doing this for 10 years or 11 years now. Uh, so I actually spent many, many years in the car business. I uh, worked for American Honda Motor Company as a factory rep, had my own company doing marketing with thousands of dealers nationwide. Uh, and then when the recession hit, I uh, decided to make a complete change in my career and uh, got into solar. And uh, first with a solar finance company and then with a solar uh, installation company and then finally with a solar distribution company. And about that time, I went to a conference in D.C. Uh, and um, drove the very early Nissan Leaf, very early Chevy Volt uh, a conversion vehicle. Uh, and uh, having spent so many years in the car business, it was like an epiphany. I, I walked away. I remember sitting on the plane thinking, I have seen where the car industry is going to go. Um, and so uh, worked hard to uh, add EV charging to our portfolio at the distribution company. We actually ended up getting the first national distributorship that ChargePoint ever granted in their history. Um, and we were somewhere number seven, maybe number eight if you count the guy that signed up and never did anything. Yeah. And uh, so uh, 
but then quickly I actually spun off on my own because the folks I was with at the time really didn't have an interest in it. So uh, that was you know, back in 2011, 2012, and uh, we've been growing ever since and um, you know, really focus on uh, making sure that we have whatever we need for the customer. Um, I can remember where uh, back in the early days, you know, one station was uh, made your day, it got a two station deal. You went out to dinner, celebrate. <laughs> now we call that 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. You know? Right. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, the industry certainly has changed. Uh, the volumes are are much higher. You know, you have customers that are looking at a dozen, two dozen, three dozen stations at a time or more, um, and you have customers that are looking at uh, popping down a half a million dollars uh, on a DC fast charge site, um, and you know they're they're preparing for it. You know, the Yes, it is expensive, but people seem to have a good idea of what they're getting into at this point. Yeah, that, that's great. Gabe, tell us a little bit. Your uh, your adventure has not been uh, quite as long as Jim's, but I'm sure you've seen a lot of the same challenges and same evolutions he has. So talk to me a little bit about how you got started and what kind of made you pivot into this uh, industry. Um, so I've been in the ESCO world since about 2004. So when I say ESCO, I mean energy services company. As a contractor, our primary role and responsibility was to save energy for our customers. And uh, I have very, very deep wealth of relationships within the utility side of things. Um, Innovus Energy is uh, a lead CSI installer for National Grid. And that's really how we came to it. National Grid put a big focus on electrification um, about three years ago, they said, listen, this is where we're going in the Northeast. Um, you guys have relationships with us. Would you want to participate in a uh, RFP for the utility where we become an installer for them? We chose to do that, not really thinking it was going to be as explosive as it has been. Um, again, uh, my business partner, Dalton, and I thought this would be a complimentary service that we offer to our energy efficiency customers. What we found is there's a lot of folks in the space that are in the space because of the sizzle, but they don't really know what they're doing. And um, we've bumped our heads a couple times, but as a result, you know, uh, learned some things that I think other folks are yet to learn. Um, and it's gone as far as essentially become an advisor to one of the manufacturers, a couple of the manufacturers in the space. Um, because we've rolled our sleeves up and gotten our hands dirty and figured out what it takes to actually install, well, design and install, right, Jim? It's not just install. It's figuring out how far that trench needs to go, how thick the wire gauge needs to be to support the charging. Um, and then something that's really, really interesting that I think we're right on the cusp of, and, and maybe I'm just a little bit behind Jim on this one, but... The reality that DC fast charging opens up a whole new revenue stream for a customer. So you're moving so many electrons in such a short amount of time, it can actually become something that's a profitable venture. Whereas level two charging, arguably at this point in time, I just don't think there's that much money you could make from level two charging. Jim, what do you, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I, I think um, level two, the third party ownership model has been a disaster uh, for just about everybody that's tried it. The, the biggest provider in the industry has lost over $200 million over the last decade. Um, went bankrupt once already uh, before it was bought by the current owners. Um, DC fast charging, there is a path to make it a profitable venture, but you have to have a couple of things in place. You have to have decent incentives to make the install uh, worthwhile. Uh, but most importantly, you need to have a utility where they understand that demand charges can kill the economics if they're not careful. And some of the utilities out there get it. <clears throat> and uh, like Southern California, Edison, PG&E are doing um, uh, programs where they have demand charge uh, Demand charges waived on certain tariffs. Uh, Hawaiian Electric actually has a special tariff just for EV charging where the kilowatt hours are higher, but there's no demand charges. And then we have others. Uh, unfortunately, it's mostly the co-ops uh, that are out there and some of the generation companies behind those that uh, still don't realize that they are about uh, they have the power to kill the golden goose of this. Uh, there's a, a generation company here where I am in Colorado. And their attitude essentially so far has been, we don't care. As a result, one of the, the municipal um, utilities up in the mountains has a DC fast charger that has outrageous prices and drivers are livid about it. And you know, they're, they're pointing the finger at the utility. Uh, unfortunately, their finger really needs to be pointed at the uh, generation company that uh, just doesn't care at this point about uh, the necessary reforms in order to make it profitable. Um, and then the other factor that helps quite a bit, it depends, depends on where you are, is low carbon fuel credits can uh, play a big role. So in California, you can make it work just about anywhere. Oregon, um, a little bit less so, but still you can, you can make the numbers work. Um, but some utilities, uh, yeah, they, they are going to have to come around uh, either uh, when they wake up and realize that uh, their old system isn't working from a tariff perspective. Or I, I think we're going to start to see legislatures and regulators step in and basically say, look, if it's going to be for transportation, you need to have some sort of a tariff where demand charges are mitigated to a certain degree. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, you know, one of the reasons that we have such common ground between, you know, Koozie National Car Charging and, and Koozie to Novus is, is you guys really do put people first. And I don't think that's always the case, specifically in technology rollouts. I mean, we see it in every industry that we've been involved in. But you're really thinking about like what is best going to service these people, and you're going to guide them in the right direction. So talk about, you know, you can use that surcharge uh, in that location. You said, hey, people were getting you know outrageous about it. Talk about some of the pricing models because I think you know as we go out and we do installations and everything, that's what's always intriguing to me because. It's, it's really fascinating about like how, you know, how are these people justifying these costs? And the surcharges, I was just at the Grand Canyon um, this past week, and I was shocked that right there in the Grand Canyon, there's tons of charging stations, but I didn't have an EV car, so I didn't even go over uh, to check to see what the rates were. But I know how much gas costs there, and I can tell you, it's, it was substantial markup. So just talk to me a little bit about the, some of the pricing models you see and some of the trends that kind of uh, pricing is going through. When possible, we always recommend that uh, site sta or station owners charge by the kilowatt hour. Um, that's possible in 34, 35, 36 states right now. Um, there's a handful of states, a little more than a dozen, that have not yet adopted uh, the necessary laws that allow people to charge by the kilowatt hour, Texas being one of them, for example. Um, so in that case, you have to charge by time. But when you charge by time, 
that really is inherently unfair. Uh, and let's talk about level two just uh, to start with. You know, my very first EV 10, 11 years ago was a Chevy Volt that charged at 3.3 kilowatts. Um, today I'm, I drive a Tesla, not a, as much of a new one as, as Gabe because mine charges a little bit slower. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, still charges uh, more than twice as fast as that Chevy Volt. If we're both plugged into the same station and we're being charged the same amount of time, uh, same, bar, same amount by time, the Chevy Volt driver is going to get half as many electrons as the Tesla driver. And so that is inherently unfair. Um, other ways you can char charge people is um, by a plug-in fee, a session fee. Um, some people will layer on the energy cost plus the uh, cost of um, a time, uh, like a parking meter type charge, plus uh, a plug-in fee. We really discourage that for our customers that are willing to listen. Um, and we try and keep it simple. I'm a big believer in the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Um, and that's something that we've always lived by in our company. But uh, yeah, the, uh, it, it doesn't have to be complicated. Um, we do see uh, some systems that uh, will change based on time of use. So uh, you know, going back to Hawaii, for example, it's a market that we know very well. Um, they have some pretty dramatic swings of what energy costs during the day. They have so much solar, they actually want people to charge in the middle of the afternoon, which is uh, unlike a lot of the country. Um, so if, you're, uh, if it's 2 p.m., it's going to cost you a lot less to plug in um, your EV at that time of day than at uh, nine in the evening. So um, you know, the stations that are out there, um, most of the, the smart stations have the flexibility to do all that. Uh, a lot of them, you can actually charge different groups of people, different rates, uh, which is great when you're talking about uh, municipal owned stations, for example, where you know, might have something, uh, one rate for the citizens that pull up and use the station, but the fleet vehicles are free. For example, you know, no reason to charge a city fleet vehicle to use city electrons. So uh, lots of different ways to go. I will say that what we found at level two is that you can kind of get, you can get away with almost two times the cost of electricity before consumers start to really uh, resist. Um, DC fast charging, people will pay a higher premium uh, often, you know, four or five times cost of electricity. Uh, but, you know, as with anything, there is an upper limit before people say, you know what, I'm just not going to bother. I'm going to go to the next station down the street. Yeah. The only thing I would add is there are, uh, there's an advantage in some cases where you can start to ding people that are on the charger for too long. So folks that are concerned about usage and not enough charging heads and so forth and so on, you can actually penalize customers if they're on there past it's full or past an hour or past two hours. Um, it's extremely flexible. You can do whatever you want with, um, with the charging. And I, I do agree with Jim. I think the, a fair and reasonable way to charge people for charging is by cage. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and one thing that I think is worth saying is that, you know, we've, now that we've been doing this in this industry uh, for more than a decade, what we found is that free charging, unfortunately, leads often to uh, bad driver behavior. So if you have uh, smart charging, even if the, the cost is relatively low, you at least have a tool to help manage that behavior, whether it's uh, putting that financial penalty um, where uh, some systems, you know, you can say, all right, the first two hours are 
12 cents a kilowatt hour, but hours three and four or five and beyond are 24 cents. Or as Gabe said, you can set it so that you, know, you have a grace period of say 30 minutes after your car stops charging and then you get hit with maybe five bucks, you know, if you don't move your car. So uh, while there are quite a few advocates out there for free charging um, and in, in the right situation is great, but it also uh, does not leave you any tools to really um, modify driver behavior when you need to. Yeah, that's uh, that's really great feedback or perspective. Let me ask you guys a question. There's, let's talk about applications and then the public versus the private sector and, and how that kind of looks in your guys' perspective on that. Uh, it's really interesting. We use ChargePoint as an example um, today. And everyone's like, someone's like, hey, that's strictly private. I'm like, not even close. So it's like half municipalities here in Ohio have ChargePoint and they do offer them as a service to their you know their community. And there's not a charge there. You still have the, you know, the charge point app to get the uh, thing to unlock and everything. We talk about private versus public. So I think it's really interesting. And I'm curious about your guys' perspective on the, on the NEVI plan. Well, it goes back to uh, a theme we, we started off with, which is you, know, you want to pick the right tool for the use case. And uh, since ChargePoint is such a dominant player in the industry, you know, we can talk about them. They have uh, the CT4000 unit, which is designed to for public use with the screen, et cetera. Um, and then they have the CPF unit, which is fleet or multifamily only that does not have a screen. Um, and they soon are coming out with the CP6000, which is going to be the next generation, uh, but will go up to 80 amps and will be a much more modular design. Um, and that's all at level two. And then you get to DC and they have the 62 and a half kilowatt station that can be paired with another one. So you can get up to 125 kilowatts. And uh, just now we're starting to see the first examples of the modular Express Plus that's coming up. And you can build those up to 400 kilowatts um, and you can mix and match power cabinets and dispensers so you can grow more power if you need or you can grow more dispensers if you need. Um, and it's designed to, uh, to really kind of ramp up as, uh, as demand grows. So uh, it's really a question of, of picking that right tool for the job. You know, uh, the, the CPF, you know, fleet station, uh, you wouldn't see that in the general public unless it were at a multifamily installation. Um, and there's some that are, are more robust than others. You know, there's a couple that we would sell for a, a residential customer. We don't do a whole lot of residential, um, but I would never want to put that in a commercial setting just because you know, living in somebody's garage at home is one thing, but being out in the elements is a whole other thing. Even if it's designed, uh, NEMA 3R, you know, to be out in the elements, some are just more robust than others. So, so talk about the, uh, the elements a little bit, Jim. I don't think people realize the effects of the different environments they have on, on EV cars and, and the charges themselves. Can you give a little perspective on that? Uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, we all live in uh, parts of the country to get some snow. Um, and so the, uh, the hardware you want to make sure is designed in a way that uh, is not going to rust, uh, you know, for instance, um, kind of sound like a broken record, but ChargePoint has an all aluminum body. And so, you know, there's no fear about uh, it get, going rusty. We have a unit at the Honolulu Zoo, which is, you know, 50 feet from the ocean. No rust at all because it's aluminum. We have uh, the very same model at a ski resort in Alaska. And, you know, I've seen pictures of, you know, snow piled up uh, taller than the, the station, you know, six feet tall. People, you know, plowed out of it. Um, and uh, it's still working great. Um, along with that, with cold weather, you want to have cords that are flexible, um, 
you know, some of the cord manufacturers have figured out how to keep the cords flexible below freezing. And most of the major manufacturers have adopted uh, that kind of cord. I'm also a big believer in cord management. Um, as much as I love my fellow EV drivers, we're not really good about uh, getting our hands dirty and coiling the cord after even our own use, if not somebody else's use. And so uh, I think cord management is uh, a really smart thing to add for any application, uh, even if it's just a fleet vehicle and you know, the fleet boss can come in and, and scold their, um, their user. You know, might as well make it easy for them. Might as well keep that cord clean and off the ground. Um, and so you know, we do sell a couple units that don't have it, but we always recommend uh, maybe an aftermarket system or an integrated system if possible. Yeah, we have two level two chargers in our office. Um, and, they're, and they're newer additions for us EV drivers. And there's somebody, and I will find them, and I know I'm going to find them, that's not a, a good cable management person. And this is going to come back to bite us in the butt at some point. We're going to start charging at our houses. So, um, yeah, that definitely resonates with me. Um, Gabe, give me a little perspective on, so, you know, you keep hearing these numbers, 2025, 50% of the cars that come off the line are going to be electric, uh, 2030, you know, X, Y, and Z is going to happen. 2035, a lot of states are mandating that's only electric cars. Give me a, uh, some thoughts you have, Gabe, on where you think we see the next 5, 10, 15 years going with all of this. So here's an interesting segue from the last question. And I'm in total agreement with Jim and you on cord management. Um, two additional things to consider and then a potential solution, which you may or may not be aware of. But... Um, what about the trip hazard and who yeah. gets sued if somebody trips furthermore uh, uh, if i could pause i often will describe cord management as the driver's favorite feature designed by an attorney <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah, the billboards hey, Dave, you can use that line wherever you want I it. Yeah. i'm gonna have to coin that one um okay so if we think about that just a little bit further what happens, uh, one of the municipalities that we've worked with for quite a long time, we've installed several stations for them, I think 12 or 15, something like that. I went back to do some lighting stuff for them and saw that one of those chargers is essentially located in a puddle. Now the charger itself is not in the puddle, but you have to park in a puddle to get access to the cord. Well. This is New England. What happens in the middle of winter time if somebody goes to plug that car in and falls? So where I'm segueing is this really interesting technology. The company's called Hevo. They're based in New York City at this point, and they have uh, wireless charging. It's a very interesting platform that I think has some significant benefit to it over the current model of charging. Um, if you, you know, consider winter charging, how do you handle that with respect to lawsuits? If somebody gets hurt, it's going to be flying. And if you have wireless charging, that takes that equation out. Um, I think they've also done something about a charging lane in Detroit where literally you can charge as your vehicle is going over the top of it. The limitations when we spoke to them, which was, I think, two, three months ago, was their pack is set up for a Nissan Leaf. And Tesla has not been uh, very friendly with respect to 
playing around with their technology, but I think that there is a case to be made for wireless charging, though it's less efficient. You lose some electrons in the process. Um, my first efficient vehicle was, uh, was a Ford, uh, I'm sorry, a Toyota Prius. And uh, I got it because my uh, company took my gas card away and decided to go to a monthly stipend. And so I went and got the Prius and was happy with 50 miles a gallon, but really unhappy with um, the performance. I used to say there was a gerbil, maybe one and a half gerbils in the, in the engine compartment. Getting on the highway was a stressful event. Um, then, you know, flip forward, um, I ended up getting a, a Ford Fusion Energy, uh, which was a plug-in hybrid. I found that to be a great car. Uh, then when we started doing all this stuff in the EV space, I thought it was appropriate to practice what I preach. And so I got a Tesla. Something that I think is really interesting is number one, EVs work really well. It's a pleasure to drive that car. The autopilot feature is amazing. Um, and I don't see any reason why people wouldn't own electric vehicles, though in Massachusetts, with our current administration doing what it's doing, um, residential customers as of November, uh, so it's in effect now, are paying 50 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity. Um, that is an effect of shortage of natural gas and the real pressure to not be using natural gas for power. So I think that EV makes a lot of sense, but we have to build it out in a way that's sustainable because if it's not sustainable, it's not sustainable. Um, so the other thing that I think we haven't touched on that, that I'm really passionate about um, because I really believe it's factual and uh, Jim, you probably can concur on this one, but one of the reasons why I went with Tesla instead of uh, Lucid or Polestar or any of these other manufacturers is because of the Tesla charging network. Wherever I go in Massachusetts and Connecticut, there's always a supercharger close by. And I'm looking at Lucid. I like the design of the vehicle. It looks like, uh, you know, really interesting to me, but I feel like the supercharging network is not as robust as it needs to be for me not to have range anxiety because there are days where I travel 250, 300 miles to a destination to look at work and then want to get home. So I'd be interested, uh, Jim, what your perspective is on that. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with uh, two things that, uh, or something that happened last week, which was Tesla uh, opening up their plug standard. Um, and there's there's two branches of that decision. One is opening it up to any manufacturer that wants to use it, but also allowing charging station manufacturers to add that Tesla cord. It's something that has been physically possible for a long time, but my understanding is that um, it, uh, it's something that the lawyers have, have put a barricade around. Uh, I've seen prototypes of charging stations with a Tesla cord and um, 
the uh, not to name names, but uh, the manufacturer told me, yeah, we, we got a hand slapped. Um, now that hand will be slapped. Um, so yeah, I can and I can tell you this is not going to be a secret to anybody that's uh, installed the CP250. There was a third set of contacts there, and that's uh, designed so that there could be a third arm uh, up on top, a swing arm, uh, and you know, there's no other third. Um, plug standard that's going to be coming down the road at this point. So um, that's kind of interesting, but also uh, Tesla's already opened up the supercharger network to non-Teslas in Europe, um, and they have a design, actually they've moved mostly to the CCS2 plug uh, in Europe. And there is a design in the patent uh, book right now that uh, Tesla has uh, not installed yet, but a station where you can grab either the uh, Tesla cable or a CCS1 cable for the US. Uh, and um, in Europe, you can uh, add yourself to a Tesla account, even if you don't have a Tesla, and you, know, you get charged a little bit more. But um, Tesla's motivation for doing that is is this NEVI program. You know, they won't qualify for any of the NEVI funding if it's a closed system. By opening it up to other drivers, it all of a sudden makes them um, uh, eligible for this $5 billion that's going to be coming down the road. So um, having said that, you know, they're uh, the Electrify America and the EVgo networks. They are getting um, to the point where you can pretty much drive coast to coast, um, but they are not nearly as ubiquitous as, as uh, Tesla. Yeah. yeah. But I think we're going to see, you know, that that's going to it's, it's underway. Uh, take care of itself. Yeah. And then that's the whole point of Nevi is that, you know, every 50 miles, there's going to be four minimum 150 kilowatt unit stations. Um, there's a couple parts of the country, um, and uh, and uh, Gabe, this may uh, may um, be hard to comprehend given that you're in New England, but you know we have a stretch of road from the border of Colorado into Utah, 100 miles, nothing. There's like two highway exits, no services whatsoever. And so, you know, nobody knows. Are they going to run a 50-mile line? Are they going to put in a 2-megawatt wind turbine? Uh, you know, are they just going to say, look, we can't do it? Um, there definitely is no economic case to build the Nevi station there. Um, but, uh, you know, these are some of the things that we're going to have to figure out. And, you know, those, these are the, the riddles that are fun to solve. Uh, one thing we haven't touched on here, and we could probably go for another hour if we were to get deep into it, and that is storage. Yeah, we talked about demand charges earlier. Um, one antidote to demand charges are reform tariffs. The other one is is on-site storage. And you know, there's a lot of folks that uh, say they have solutions coming. Um, not a whole lot that are on the market yet, one or two. Um, but uh, I think we're going to see that play an important role moving forward as well. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, so let's talk about... Um, some of these trends beyond this, what, what kind of ancillary products do you guys see? I think that's the fun thing for me. I think that's uh, what I like to see. I think we all have come back. I know that Gabe and I have seen some some products that he shared and vice versa. Um, and I, what are some of these ancillary products? That, that's where I think there's a lot of opportunity is these businesses that are supplementing and improving the infrastructure doing that. Can you talk about some things? You don't have to use names if you don't want, but um, talk about some ancillary products. Gabe, I know you just mentioned the, the wireless charger, but are you guys seeing anything else that got you excited right now? Precast bases. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Precast bases, where you basically can order the base so you can do your installation in the wintertime. You don't have to 
leave and come back because you poured the concrete. Um, that, that's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at uh, a product that we may add to our portfolio um, that I saw at a trade show a couple weeks ago. And it essentially is a, all the infrastructure needed for a Nevi site in one box. You'll literally buy it, you'll ship it, you'll plop it down, you hook it up and everything's in there and you're not waiting for the transformers, you're not waiting for the service panels. It goes, uh, connects to the utility on one side and connects to your four charging stations on the other side. Um, it is not cheap, but when you factor in the cost of all the other equipment and you know, have the, uh, and then the labor to put it all together, it actually starts to, to pencil out pretty easily. Um, so ways to make those installations easier, I think is gonna be really interesting. Um, there's a, a solar uh, parts manufacturer called Shoals. They make um, wire and they actually came out a couple of weeks ago with a completely overhead system so you don't have to dig up the ground. And that's something I'm gonna be digging into to, to see how feasible that may be uh, moving forward. Um, and that's uh, not a plug for them. I just heard about it, uh, but we haven't used it yet. Yeah, we're, we're looking at some similar uh, things that are done in the industrial sector with the trucking community um, and labor to level two, level three, both. And sometimes it's a blended model um, as you kind of look at it that way. Uh, so that's really interesting uh, to us as the different ways people are spending this and, and trying to find ways to continue to add value. Can you talk about some of the micro and macro um, transit trends you guys are seeing and, you know, whether it's buses, uh, trucks or whatever, you know, public vehicles, tell me a little bit about what you guys are seeing in that space. Rivian's pretty interesting, though they're losing money hand over fist. I don't think that that's going to be their long-term story. Um, they've got a great, the truck there, uh, the Ford Lightning, uh, something that's interesting that most, I, I think most people don't quite understand is the, the 80 amp, protocol. I don't think that, and Jim, please correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, that wouldn't make a difference to me or you with our Tesla because our bandwidth is what it is. Um, that helps with cars that have not yet been developed other than the Ford Lightning. And there's a couple others that would accept that full 80 amp protocol. Yeah. Um, from the passenger vehicles, um, it's going to develop differently than uh, the commercial vehicles. Uh, I'm a big believer that there is no reason a school bus today, unless uh, it's going you know, interstate, uh, needs to be gas or diesel powered any longer. You know, the, uh, let, let me put it this way. 80% of the school buses in this nation, no reason they cannot be electric and they ought to be electric. Um, and then uh, I'm thinking about my own kid that gets on a, a bus and goes, you know, to across the state for debate tournaments, but um, yeah. you know that may be the the exception to the rule. Um, you know we're seeing uh, a lot of action on the medium duty side right now. Uh, fleets are um, what I love working with fleet managers and and folks that are making decisions about fleets is you lay out the the numbers and they make a decision on the numbers. It's not emotionally driven and you know. There's a reason why Amazon has 100,000 Rivian vans coming because those are predictable routes. They can right size the battery. Um, and uh, you know, there's, it's really easy to actually make that work. Um, and so we're gonna see you know, the, the big push in light duty, then medium duty, 
but even heavy duty, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see what the Tesla semi can do. Um, but, uh, at the same time, you know, their, their mega charger is dispensing huge amounts of energy. And you know, how is that going to be generated? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that the, uh, the micro nuclear plants, uh, come along soon. We're, we have a problem. <laughs> we definitely have a problem and we have to address that the supply side. Um, yeah. yeah, and you know, coming from the solar world, I think that's a great, uh, great place to start. I, you know, I'm, I just moved into a new house. I'm going to be putting solar on it here probably this spring, and uh, yeah, anyone that can do it probably ought to do it. So something really yeah. cool that's in the works um, are you know solid state batteries. Um, there's a company that has spun out of MIT that claims a three minute charge from bottom to top. Um, that to me will make the technology completely that's going to spin it forward a lot more than I think adding DC fast charging. People realize that they'd spend less time at a fueling station with their EV than they would with a gasoline vehicle. It becomes even more convenient, less reasons not to do it. Yeah. yeah. There's uh, so many billions of dollars going into battery research. It's fascinating to see. There's a solid state company up the road from us that uh, um, actually got a charger from us so they can test some of their, their products. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm always keeping an eye on what they're doing because somebody's going to unlock yep. this sooner or later. Yep. I think you're right. Yeah, it's going to happen for sure. So um, I know we're getting kind of close on time, and I think that uh, we probably get to keep this conversation going on for five or six hours. Maybe we'll do it again for the first part of the year and kind of you know hone it in on something not as general as this. Um, but I think I'd like to have your guys' perspectives. You know, uh, Colorado is pretty forward thinking about all of this, and, and the, the eastern states and, and Massachusetts seems to be getting on board as well. I just got back from Arizona, and I was shocked about how many chargers there are in Arizona. I mean, even in some pretty rural areas, I kept saying to my wife, like, holy cow, holy cow. I just, you don't see that kind of saturation here in Ohio. Um, and I think Ohio is still trying to catch up with everything. But yeah, just give me any perspective of what you guys think. Um, you know where you think this is all going, or something that gets you excited about the next uh, phase of this. Well, I think you know. I think Jim covered it well. Uh, part, part part of the reason that we've been able to do what we've been able to do in such a short amount of time is because of utility incentives. And for states that want to accelerate pun intended, uh, the EV adoption, they need to open up their purses and pay, incentivize people to put these stations in. Uh, there's no question that EV is a disruptive technology. It, just drive one. If you're wondering, just go drive one. Um, and uh, it's an exciting time to be in the space. And I, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think uh, we have basically begun to scratch the surface of where this is headed and uh, it's uh, really thankful to be a part of it. I, I think we're going to see even more rapid adoption. Um, the biggest constraint is going to be supply chain. Um, there's, a, there's a really fascinating video on YouTube by a Stanford professor named Tony Seba, S-E-B-A. If you haven't uh, seen the video, it's about an hour long. Um, filmed at University of Colorado. I actually had a chance to see it in person. And uh, his um, focus is the consumer adoption curve. 
And you know, there was a day when nobody had a tablet. And then very shortly thereafter, everybody had a tablet. Um, and you know, we're, these consumer adoption curves are getting steeper and steeper and steeper. Now cars are a little bit unusual in that you know, it's a more expensive product and it lasts uh, quite a long time. But you know, still, Gabe's uh, right, once you drive an electric car, you really don't want to go back. Um, and so you know, I think we're, the other thing that we're seeing from a, from a sales perspective is you know, there are industries we've been talking to for years and years and years that for a long time you know, kind of said, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll pay attention to it someday. Uh, and now all of a sudden realize that this is something they have to do. Um, the multifamily industry is a good example of that, where most of the large companies out there that are running multifamily properties, they now get it. They now realize that this is amenity that is as important as having that exercise room um, as anything else. And you know, we did a project in Los Angeles where you know, I was chatting with the manager. So I'm just sick and tired of people walking in uh, and saying, do you have a place for me to plug in my electric car? And when I tell them no, they turn around and walk out without even looking at the apartment. Well, thankfully we solved that problem for them. Um, we're seeing the same with fleets. We're seeing the same with hospitality where uh, people now realize that this is something that they need to have in order to stay competitive. And um, yeah, that's, it's been refreshing to see having uh, been knocking on those doors for the last 10 years that, that now they uh, they answer the door and, uh, and want to hear what's going on. Yeah, well, this has been great, guys. I look forward to, to doing this again here in the near future. Uh, I appreciate the partnership with, with both you guys and your great companies and look forward to riding this EV wave into the new year with you guys.